0: Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you'll be enjoyed. My deep burden this morning is that you will guard us from uh, engaging our own message, that you'll guard me from uh, sharing something that may be on my personal agenda, and that we just expose and unpack your message and your agenda. Lord, I pray that you will just guard our ears from anything that's not from you. Stop my tongue from anything that's not from you. I pray that what is from you that we gobble up and that we trust is true and that we engage it wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray too that on um, on a Sunday with lots of folks traveling and spring break activities that such an important message finds its way to hearts that aren't here this morning. I pray for faithfulness in engaging your word. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for Rance Moore and uh, Faith Outreach. just want to lift up another church in our community and just ask that you'll be famous among that people, that they will be amazed by your grace, that you'll guard them from works, religion, that they will be satisfied in Christ alone, that their righteousness, that they are clothed in day by day, that comes forth in their sermons, it comes forth in their language, it comes forth in their homes is that of Christ alone. I pray for Rance and his marriage and his family and just pray for worship. pray that he is, uh, that he is being undone by the gospel and that he is being rebuilt into the image of Christ over time and that that's spilling forth into his um, home environment and also in, into and through the pulpit. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Thankful, thankful for the sweet privilege of serving Christ alongside uh, this church and this community. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to begin in John chapter 15 this morning, the final hours before Jesus went to the cross. <clears throat> he said these words to his eleven. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's as far as I want to go this morning, just capturing the picture of the vine and the branches and abiding in him. A couple of the verses that we're really going to focus on this morning are really two of the most alarming verses that I've encountered in my Bible in some time. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, verse 2, he takes away. And then in verse 8, verse 7, actually verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This message is about something called apostasy. In my 42 years, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on apostasy. I don't think that I've ever preached one on apostasy. These words are frightening when you really take them in, to be cut away, gathered up, and thrown into the fire. I was talking with Brad Cardwell earlier this week. We were working out in his barn, and he had mentioned that he was reading this passage to his family. And that Lily's face got real alarmed when he got to that passage. She had this look on her face of shock. And I said, Oh, that we as adults had a look of, face, a look of shock on our faces when we heard that passage. <laughs> to be cut away, gathered up, and thrown into the fire. It involves what it sounds like it involves. It sounds like eternal punishment, but the thing that I don't know that we really get is that it involves someone who was once in the vine. It's not a godless pagan who knows nothing of God. That's not what this is about. This passage is about one who once was someone we would call a worshiper. Someone who looked like us, who acted like us, who may be you, who may be me. Someone who was once part of the vine. We tend to talk about those who know Christ and those who don't. We tend to talk in terms of two groups of people. God's people and those who aren't. Well, there's a third group. There's a third group that we're going to consider this week and next. A group of people born into a blessed family via baptism. The same thing that we saw this morning. A group of people born into a blessed family via baptism. Born into a blessed people with tons of good things. Blessings that we're all bathing in. We're talking about a people once connected to the vine who bear bad fruit or no fruit at all and are cut away and thrown into the fire. There's a third group of people that's way, 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 way underdeveloped, and it's called the apostate. The next two weeks, we're going to consider the apostate, and I trust <clears throat> that it will quicken his people to persevere. I trust that it will quicken his people to persevere. Here's the key. This is the first part of a sandwich. You get the other half of the sandwich at the end of the message. To persevere in what he's given us. That's the bread. You get the other piece of bread at the end. To persevere in what he's given us. And I trust that these messages on apostasy will equip his people to handle apostasy when we see it. Not if we see it. When we see it. Now, if we were to understand what Jesus is sharing with his disciples... We've got to consider the branch that didn't bear fruit that would have entered the disciples' minds when he says, I'm the true vine. We've got to go where the disciples would have gone. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we're talking about the nation of Israel. What is unfortunately super uber underdeveloped for a bunch of 20th, 21st century Christians. The nation of Israel, man, that's the story that we've got to go to to understand where the disciples would have gone. When Jesus said, I'm the true vine, the disciples would have considered the statement in light of Israel. Jesus is the true vine as in Israel must not be true. So it's best for us to consider when we're considering apostasy to consider the consequences of fruitlessness in light of Israel before we consider it relative to the church. We're going to build a foundation with what this would have meant to them. There's some grave, grave lessons to learn from Israel's apostasy. That's where we're going to spend the next two weeks. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans, in a lot of ways, is a book devoted to this topic. What we're going to do this morning in large part is just sort of immerse ourselves into the book of Romans to understand apostasy. Paul writes the book of Romans, the letter, it was a letter, to the church in Rome that would have been a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And he's answering some questions and dealing with some questions that would have been on their mind. One, an important question that would have been on their mind is, if God gave all these things to Israel and Jesus was born an Israelite among them, why didn't all Israel follow him? It's a great question. And he deals with that question specifically in chapters 9 through 11, but we're going to immerse ourselves into the whole book because it's going to reveal to us Israel's apostasy. And I promise you it's going to have some implications, some grave implications for the church. First of all, I want to show you that Israel had the cream. Israel had the goods. Israel was swimming in blessing. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. Paul has just dealt with, and actually back up to verse 2, or verse 3. That's what I said in the first place. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. You could hear the, the um, plant language, the vine dresser language. Paul says, I wish I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. But my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. Watch. The adoption as God's people. To them, the Israelites, belong the cream of the glory of God. God dwelling among his people in tabernacle and temple. To them belong the covenants. The covenant that began with Abraham was passed to Isaac, was reiterated, recapitulated to Jacob, that they were actually the product of. To them, they've got the cream. They've got the goods. To them belong the giving of the law. Chapter 3, verse 2 calls it the oracles of God. The Jews have the oracles of God. Remember the matrix? Some of y'all that saw the matrix? The oracles. Man, that sounds awesome. It is awesome. To the Jews belong the oracles of God, the giving of the law. To them belong the worship. To them belong the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from the Israelite race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Man, the Jews have the cream. The Jews have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. They have the patriarchs, and from them actually came the Christ, and they also have the oracles of God. They have amazing, incredible blessing. Exodus chapter 6. Don't turn there. Just listen. God is talking with Moses, and he tells Moses, he says, you know what? This is getting passed to the nation of Israel. He says, I did not make myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on a first-name basis. But guess what? Y'all will now know me as Yahweh. I'm dropping handles with you. You're going to know me by my first name. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he tells the nation of Israel, he says, you will be my treasure among all peoples. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that it's not because there's anything special about you. In fact, you're quite homely. It's not because you're most in number. It's not because there's anything impressive, but I am placing my love on you. To you belong the cream. The creator revealed who he was to them and he said, guess what? You will be my people. And he gave them a sign of that covenant that he made with them. And the sign of that covenant was the sign of circumcision. Guess what? The same God that made a covenant with Israel with the sign of circumcision has made a covenant with God's people today. And the sign that we enjoy is not circumcision anymore, but it's what just took place a few minutes ago. That's our sign. The sign of baptism. We've made a covenant with the same God. When someone is baptized into the people of God, you have entered into a relationship with the Creator. We're assuming that baptism goes with conversion, that they all happen in the same hours. I'm not saying that Danielle was saved up here, but I'm saying something significant happened in these baptismal waters where she made an appeal to God for a good conscience. And just like a pastor stands before a man and a woman and pronounces them man and wife in that moment, Danielle was entered into baptized into the people of God with full rights and privileges. She got the cream of being part of the people of God. Full rights and privileges as a member of the people of God. We have the also, which is better than the Jews, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now we have not just the incompleted oracles of God, we got the full story. We're looking at the nation of Israel and we're looking at us and we're saying, man, man. In contrast to the Jews, we're saying, oh, we got what they had and more. We're going to establish that as a baseline. They had the goods. But back to Israel. The problem with Israel is that they were faithless. Turn to Romans chapter 2. They were faithless. Israel had been scandalously blessed scandalously blessed. We'll pick up in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul does something with his letters. He builds a straw man, and then he kills him with his language. And that's what he's doing right here. He's building a a Jewish straw man. Just give him a name, Jewish Jake. And he's going to kill him here in a minute. He's going to destroy him right here in front of the the Romans. And now that's 2,000 years later. Let's watch him kill Jewish Jake. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you, Jake, are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, Jake, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Jake, dishonor God by breaking the very thing you boast in. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We're developing the Jewish problem. As I read this passage, man, I'm realizing these guys relied on the law and they boasted in God. They knew his will, they approved what is excellent. They were instructed from the law. Sounds great so far. They believed themselves to be guides to the blind. Here, blind, I'm going to help you with the truth. Man, so far, they could be describing the church. They were instructors of the foolish, teachers of children. Yes, that's good. But while they taught others, they did not teach themselves. While they boasted in the law, they dishonored God by breaking the very thing they boasted in. And the outcome is that the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. Trying to grab this truth and bring it here 2,000 years later. And this is just a semblance of it. I'm thinking, what a mockery we are among the lost if the summation of our faith as Christians is don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't see rated R movies. If that's what it means to be a Christian, what a mockery. What a mockery we are if the summation of our faith is just we gather once a week and smile at each other and act as if life isn't really hard. What a mockery our lives are if they're not fueled by worship. You're going to see the contrast between where the Jews were and where we are supposed to be here in a minute. But what a mockery we are to the world if we're not raging after God and reveling in who He is and what He's done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is reduced to a list of doables. We make the gospel look weak weak. sad. What a mockery we are, if that's all Christianity is. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 9, the developing problem. Paul has just dealt with circumcision. He's dealt with them having the oracles of God He's saying, man, the Jews are really set up for success. In verse 3, he says, man, there's a value of circumcision. The Jews are advantaged in many ways. But in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off with all this cream? Are the Jews, and Paul speaking of himself too, he's the perfect guy to bring this message. A Jew among Jews taught by Gamaliel, Harvard of Judaism. He says, are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. Jew, Gentile, none is righteous. No, not one. Emphasis? No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together, they become worthless. It hit me for the first time in studying this passage this week. Together, he's been speaking about Jew and Gentile. Take the Jews and add them to the Gentiles, and together, they're worthless. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You think people are generally good? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps. Is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, here's the problem summarized. Here's what the Jews did. Now, we know that whatever the law says, this thing that Jewish Jake is bragging about, boasting about, and teaching, but yet not heeding, here's how he broke it. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. As Jake, Jewish Jake, is teaching the law, Jewish Jake should have got, all of a sudden gotten real quiet and gone. Man, the thing I'm teaching is the thing I'm breaking. But yet he's boasting what he's teaching. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, listen, no human being, Jew, Gentile, will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I was thinking about what's really unpacking here. Is the Jews are what Paul's really saying here. They proved that they were not any better off than the Gentiles. They had all that cream. They had all that stuff. They had the oracles of God. They had the, the, the uh, everything I named beforehand just now that I'm, my mind is not tracking on. <laughs> all these amazing blessings they're neck deep in. I'm just not thinking well. You remember it. <laughs> they had the cream. But instead of the law being a tutor... It's leading them to brokenness. They're boasting in the thing that should be pointing out their problem. I thought it's kind of like an MRI. It's like the Jews and Gentiles both had cancer. That, remember, no one's righteous. No, not one. Jews and Gentiles add them up. They're still dying of cancer, all of them. And God blessed the Jews with an MRI machine. You can see the thing being hauled into Jerusalem and the Jews laying down one by one and laying in it. And they come out and they say, oh, you've got cancer too. Next guy. Come on, Jacob. Okay, you got cancer too. Come on, Sarah. Okay, you got cancer too. And instead of coming out of that MRI machine and going, God, help us. We've got cancer. They go, what an awesome MRI machine. That thing is awesome. You see how bad it is? Look, nations around us, you don't have the law. Look how awesome that machine is. Yeah, but you've got cancer. Oh, yeah, that's not a big deal. We've got an MRI machine. That's what the nation of Israel is doing. They're boasting in the wrong thing. And the reality is, as it turns out, no one is righteous. No, not one. Israel should have been crying out to God. Every mouth should have been stopped, leaving everyone aching for a cure. But they're boasting in the law. Look at Romans chapter 9. Here's Israel's problem. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, and they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as, as if it were, were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame Israel pursued a means that would lead to righteousness, but they did not reach it because they did not seek it by faith. They relied on works, something that they could see, something that they could touch, something they could measure, and say, look at me. They did not rely on faith. See, faith, if you remember from Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So, faith for the Israelites would have left them in a place where they're seeing their cancer, they're seeing their condition relative to this thing they're teaching and preaching, the law. And they would have said, Man, I got a hopeless situation. I need something that I haven't seen yet. I need something completely and absolutely outside of me because I don't have a remedy and a cure in myself. My lot is dire. Faith for the Israelites would have been hoping in something or someone outside of them. I found a passage that characterized the condition of Israel. Just listen to it. You don't need to turn there. You can mark it down. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's pretty sad. It's written by a man named Moses that led them for 40 years. Toward the end of his life, he wrote a song. And in this song, he speaks of this nation that he's led for 40 years. And he gives them a name. The name he gives them is Jeshurun. Jeshurun means upright one. And this is total and absolute sarcasm in this song. He says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. This mocking This sarcastic, upright one grew fat and sleek. I'm doing a pretty good job with my works. I don't need your rock of salvation. I don't need something outside of me because I'm doing a pretty good job being a good boy. And Moses says, you are Jeshurun. Upright one. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 2. Paul says of them, he says, I bear these Israelites witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You want to know what God's righteousness is? It's in the next verse. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is God's righteousness. It's the thing that they stumbled on. No thanks. We don't necessarily need a Messiah that bad. We'd like somebody to show up and liberate us from Rome. But we don't really need somebody to come and liberate us from the prison of sin. We're doing okay. Meanwhile, they have cancer and are dying. They had a zeal for God, but their zeal was not informed. It was an ignorant zeal, ignorant of faith and grace and mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They sought to establish their own righteousness and didn't submit to God's. No thanks God. I like what I can measure. I like what I can see. What I can touch. Then Paul summarizes them in verse 21, where God says of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Jeshurun. The very thing that should have told you that you had cancer, that you should have been aching for a Messiah, is the very thing you started to boast in. Apostate Israel was like Esau. You know the story of Jacob and Esau. You know that Esau was born into the right family, born in the right order. He was a manly man who traded what was really good and what really meant something for a bowl of red stew. Man, he is the picture of what Israel did. That's what works righteousness is. It's a bowl of red stew. It warms the tummy as you say, man, look what I did. But then there's tomorrow and you get hungry for more of it, and you got to go get your fix. That's what Israel did. They traded their birthright for a bowl of soup. Apostate Israel was like Judas. He was called by Jesus. He walked with Jesus. Here, was in the vine. He ate with Jesus. He enjoyed fellowship with Jesus. He even cast out demons in his name. He enjoyed the fellowship of the people of God, the other disciples. Yet he traded all of it for 30 pieces of silver. Apostasy. Israel's bowl of soup, Israel's bag of silver was works righteousness. That was their apostasy. Works righteousness. No thanks, I don't need something out of me. outside of me. I'll do it on my own. Works righteousness left them feeling pretty good about themselves, so they worshiped other gods and fell headlong into sin, bearing sour, stinking, wild grapes, Jeshurun. Now let's go where Paul goes, Eleven Romans 11. Here's where things get really, really, really personal. For a church in Greenville, Texas, Cross Point Fellowship. Romans chapter 11, verse 20. Paul is writing about the Jews. He says, they were broken off. He's still this language of the vine and branches. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Here, like a fruit. But you, Roman church, you stand fast. Here, abide. You stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches born into the vine, neither will he spare you. This is what makes me swallow hard as a pastor and as a believer and as a shepherd to the McGraw family. This is what makes me swallow hard where Paul 2,000 years ago is warning a church and your arrogance, don't think you're not capable of apostasy. Don't think I've... You're not talking about me. It's a warning for the Romans and a warning for us. Don't think that you would never do that. Why would Jesus bring this up in his final hours before the cross if it wasn't a serious and real possibility? Why would he even mention that branches in him that don't bear fruit will be cut away and thrown into the fire unless it could really happen? Paul wrote the church in Corinth and he told him he's speaking of a bunch of things about Israel, some things that happened to Israel. And he says, these things were recorded for your instruction. So we just did the same thing today looking at Romans. These things are recorded for our instruction. For Christ is coming back. That's a very real and imminent reality. It's the next step in the gospel story is Christ's return. We have some serious and urgent lessons to learn from apostate Israel. The first thing we've got to learn and realize is they were not irreligious. They're so easy to dismiss if we just see them just ignoring God altogether. The unfortunate thing is it's easy from the pulpit to caricature them. The caricature of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. (laughs) Buffoons wearing those funny hats. What you've got to realize is in their day and age, they were the upstanding guys. They were the guys that all of Israel looked at and said, man, they're the poster children. We want to be like them. And they're so easy to dismiss. We've got to realize that Israel was not irreligious. Listen to these passages. Just listen. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11. God says of Israel, he says, says to Israel, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? He didn't say, what to me is your absence of sacrifices? He said, I'm not impressed with your multitude of sacrifices. Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of, watch, well-fed beasts. Paul said they had a zeal for God. They were uber-religious. Well-fed beasts, multitude of sacrifices. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling? Sounds like a lot of people. Of my courts. We're not talking about a bunch of people that weren't religious. We're not talking about a bunch of people that walked away from God altogether in appearance. You look at them and say, man, they're bringing their fat ones to be sacrificed. They're trampling his, Then I wouldn't say trampling, they're filling his courts. They have high attendance Sunday. Looky there. And he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I am not impressed. Amos, chapter 5, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. Those are religious feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I I take no delight in your corporate worship times, Israel. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. So they're even singing. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God says in Hosea, he says, Israel, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Man, they were long on religion. They had a zeal for God. And he says, get the stench of your worship out of my nose. Because it's not about me, it's about you. It's about you measuring your own little sad, counterfeit righteousness. You should be broken, broken before me, begging for a cure for your cancer. I've given you the MRI, yet you're boasting in the machine. And you've created a bunch of doables. So I want the knowledge of God rather than your burnt offerings. We've got to see that Israel was religious. But we've got to see that in their religion, they were yet faithless. They trusted in their own efforts at righteousness. They trust in their own performance. They trusted in what they could do. But very few actually ached for a remedy for their cure. A couple that come to mind that I trust ached was Simeon and Anna, who waited in the temple courts for the salvation of Israel. I need a cure for my cancer, and I'm going to the temple every single day until he shows up. I hear it in an old man named Simeon trembling as he holds up the Christ child. He says, There he is. I needed a cure outside of myself, and here he is. Some must have hoped in him, but most of Israel didn't. No thanks. We're doing pretty good on our own. It should leave those who see apostate Israel, chosen among all nations, liberated from Egypt. Crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. Crunch, crunch, crunch. It should leave those who are watching a chosen people who get up in the morning and God has placed breakfast on the ground. A people that were led by a column of smoke and a pillar of fire. People that saw Aaron's staff bud people that saw water pour forth from a rock, it should leave us looking at them and their apostasy. It should make us tremble. Paul says, don't you be arrogant and think this couldn't happen to you. If a nation of chosen people can fall away and get it so wrong, it would be pure arrogance to think we're not capable. Pure arrogance. I got to remind you, we're not talking about Philistines this morning. We're not talking about pagans. We're talking about the apostasy of God's chosen people who were cut off and thrown into the fire. We're talking about people who once walked with God, who were God's vine well planted. That's the whole backdrop to John 15. We're talking about people who were circumcised on the eighth day. We're talking about people who studied Torah, who celebrated Passover. We're talking about a bunch of people who enjoyed the blessings of the Lord, yet they traded their birthright for a bowl of work soup and became apostate. And they were cut away and thrown into the fire. We should swallow hard and have this. You don't have to have a real one. But on the inside, think what Lily thought. When her daddy read that passage. This must cause us to tremble today. We must, as Paul told the Corinthians, examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Why would Paul say that to a church unless there was a possibility that we're not? You hear them trampling the courts? You think the church in North America can't stuff building week after week? And be worshiping wrongly? You think it's not possible? Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's arrogance to assume you couldn't be the apostate. We may either be eating a bowl of red stew, or we may have one in our future. Bread posted a uh, video on Facebook a couple weeks ago. A guy named Michael Horton. He's a guy I quoted when I was reading uh, the beginning of a book called Christless Christianity. Michael Horton, uh, in this video, was talking about something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, I'm going to unpack that for you, so don't dismiss it before I even unpack it. In the video, he tells that there was this team of sociologists that over six years studied teens. And they said the, the title of it was Soul Searching the Spirituality of America's Teens. And he coined the term as a result of that. He didn't go in looking for the religion of North America. But he walked out with a term for what he found from these teens, and I guess their families. And that title he gave it is Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Moralistic in this. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't see R-rated movies, don't engage in premarital sex. Now, l- let, me, let, me enter, let me throw something in there. By, by me calling this out, don't think I'm saying, go crazy, go do that. I'm saying the summation for these people that he's interviewing, moralism, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, or see R-rated movies or engage in premarital sex. That's what Christians do. Be nice, be a good person, because good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. So when he interviewed those who'd been raised in the church and those who hadn't, the answers were the same. That's frightening. Therapeutic in that God is here for us. He helps us when things are hard. He smooths out our marriages and money problems, and he makes you feel better about who you are. And Jesus was like a rose trampled on the ground. He took the fall and thought of us above all. Sound familiar? And the preacher in this therapeutic deism is a life coach. He makes you feel better about yourself. Get back out there and give it a go. You can do it. We end up loving him, God, more for what he does for us than who he is. God becomes someone to use rather than someone worthy of Absolute and total worship. And then deism. Beyond the therapy, that's pretty much all there is to God. He's pretty uninvolved unless I need help with something. Do you realize that if this study is true, and if this long title captures Christianity in North America... that most, if not all, of the North American church is apostate. If the study of Israel's apostasy informs us at all, we've got to look at the church in North America, and maybe many of our church experiences, and go, wait a second, that was nothing more than moralism. That didn't run me, take me, beeline to the blood of Jesus. It just told me to squeeze out good fruit, be a good boy. Which if you've been in that for long, you know that lasts for about an hour. And then you're like, "Uh uh-oh, there's some bad fruit. But there's tomorrow. I'll give it another good old try. That sounds like a Jew. That sounds like Jewish Jacob. Give it an old try because I can measure that. How is moralistic therapeutic deism any different from Israel's apostasy? If that's true. And I'll tell you this, in seven years of being here in Greenville... The reason I got excited about that moralistic therapeutic deism is because it just gave a name to something that I've observed in seven years. I can't speak for all of North America, but I can speak for this little, I can actually comment on this little context the Lord has given us stewardship over. And I'm seeing moralism, I'm seeing therapy, and I'm seeing deism. I don't need him beyond the therapy. Much of Greenville will tell you that they love God. They have a zeal for God. Much of Greenville will tell you that Jesus is their homeboy. And he takes care of them when they have problems. People you work with, people you live by, people in our sister churches, people maybe in this church. Yeah, he takes care of me when I have problems. He's good. And then when asked why they're going to heaven, most would likely say, because I'm generally a good person. I'll tell you right now, that is not submitting to God's righteousness. That's no different from Israel. That's no different. That's not submitting to God's righteousness as trying to work on one of your own. I think about the guys that wrote songs like Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace that would save a wretch like me. Most churches sing that song, but do we really know what that means? Do we really understand our wretchedness? Or do we think, I'm a pretty good person. I'll be a good boy, squeeze out some good fruit. As long as I have more good fruit than bad. It'll all sort out. How many people in and out of the church in Greenville, when questioned, would say, my righteousness is in Christ alone? How many people would say, unequivocally, clearly, Succinctly, my righteousness is in Christ alone. How many people would say that? Man, that's got to be a bur- our burden that the people of God say that clearly and unequivocally. I'm so thankful. That's what Danielle said. 10 year olds get it. We migrate away from that, I think. Many of us get it at some point, but we migrate away from it. We start to think pretty good about ourselves. We see change in our life, and then what we don't realize is showing up right behind that is pride, and this thing morphs into a works righteousness. I have my suspicions about why and how that happens, and that's where I'm going next in closing. There's a treatment for this cancer. The treatment is offered in John 15, and it's abide in Christ. Abide in God's righteousness. Abide in Christ and good fruit happens. Now, here's the thing. Here's my suspicions. I'll develop this a little bit. I want to encourage you to abide in the things He's given us. There's the other half of the sandwich. Abide in the things He's given us. I want to read a passage to you. and I want to be really... I hope the Lord uses this. This is from Ephesians. Just listen. Abide in the things God has given us. Listen to this passage from Ephesians. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's talking about the character of the church. Man, you guys walk together there's one body, let me remind you, no divisions, no Jews and Gentiles. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, grace is given. Listen. When he ascended on high, that's Christ. He led host led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Watch what these gifts are. Just skip the parentheses if you're following with me. Verse 11. He gave, here's the gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That it? He, He gave Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? <laughs> Jesus went to the Father's right hand, and all He's given us is these jokers? Now here 2,000 years later, there's no apostles, there's no prophets. That was as this canon is unfolding. Now that the Bible is complete, there's evangelists, and there's pastors, teachers. And I couple them together, pastors and teachers. And here's the question to think about when it comes to abiding. Are you abiding and walking in what God gave men? The gifts that he gave men? Are you abiding in what these jokers do? Are you abiding in the taught and preached word? As it's preached week by week by me or Brad or Steve or Scott? Are you abiding in how it's processed through these small group teachers? Are you walking in what he's given us to abide in? Are you abiding in what God is communicating to his people through vocal cords, real vocal cords? It's easy to dismiss. You say, ah, it's just (laughs) being. That's just Scott. It's small group. This is what God has given the church. If apostasy makes you kind of freak out a little bit, and you're like, I don't want to be that thrown into the fire, then walk in what he's given the church. Walk in these ordinary things. That's where you are reminded week by week that it's his righteousness we wear. In the teaching and preaching of the Word. That's where you're supposed to be reminded each week. Unfortunately, with the life coach preaching, you're not. But we're supposed to be reminded week by week. And the problem is, if you, for, you will forget that if you're not hearing it each week. I promise you. And here's, here's the fear for me as one of the, as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. When I see somebody that's sick on a given Sunday, I know when somebody's missing... I can almost tell you without fail when somebody's here on a Sunday. And it's more than just an attendance issue. Uh They, They don't have perfect attendance. He does. It's a burden issue. Because when I see somebody that's, say, for example, sick on a given Sunday, which happens? And then it turns into two Sundays. And it turns into three. And it turns into a couple months. Then I'm thinking, who's reminding them? Who's reminding them that their righteousness is not their own? I fear for them. They could be the apostate. And the problem is when you come alongside somebody like I say, man, we missed you on Sunday, there's always this feeling that, that it's like, oh, he's checking roll on me. But I mean, I really miss you on Sunday because I care about you. And I care about your journey, and I don't want you to be apostate. It's so easy to take this too far and say, you know what? That guy, he said, if you don't go to church every Sunday, you're an apostate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're in danger if you're not reminded what the gospel is about. You're in grave danger if you're not walking in what Christ has given the church. Are you engaging in what he says matters? That's abiding. Are you known and knowing? Are you members of one another as part of a people? Is this something you attend or something that you're actually part of? Do you look around the room and you are part of someone else's life and they're part of yours? That's what this means. That's abiding. Are you an accountable part of the people of God? My experience with accountability is that people like the idea of it until they're staring down the barrel of it. That's the church, an accountable part of the people of God. I will tell you, and I will share more of this next week. I'm having this thing that's coming up often in my study, this theory of apostasy through church hopping. I was talking with David Ferguson this week, and he said this. He's our our pastor at C3 at uh, Commerce. He said this. It was such a good statement. I said, did you read that somewhere? He said, no, I just made it up. It was so good. He, listen, he said. He said, "Can you profess to walk in the light, and yet live from the dark row, dark back row of one church to another, year after year after year?" Now, everybody in the back row is gonna think I'm picking on them. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all all came in late, so that's okay. I know. I know what happened. Seriously, though. Are you weeping with those who weep? Are you rejoicing with those who rejoice? Are you removing specks from others' eyes and begging them to remove the log from yours? The passage is not about don't be involved in each other's lives. It's actually how to be involved in each other's lives. Are you doing those sort of things? That's abiding. Are you readying each other for Christ's return? Are you warning each other, teaching each other, preparing to present each other to Christ beautiful and prepared for his return? then your assurance comes in abiding. Are you taking the supper, remembering him week by week, and reminding him as you hold forth that cup and that bread, remember me, God, like the, like the, 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 the rainbow. God says, I'm going to put a bow in the sky so that I will remember my promise to you. Are you holding forth that cup and that bread? God, remember me. I'm claiming a work that's absolutely outside of me, and it's good. Yes, that's right. They're in my son. Your assurance comes from abiding in what he's given us. But the Christian malady is we tend to put greater emphasis on what I'm going to call Jesus and me idea, sort of this ethereal Jesus and me thing than we do on what God has given us to walk in. The preaching of his word, the supper, the gathering of his people, accountability, submission to his leadership, so often takes a back seat to this Jesus and me thing. In fact, all those things that God says are the meat and potatoes of abiding become secondary and optional behind me and Jesus. That's how people can deal with God's leadership, maybe, or accountability. And say, talk to the hand. Me and Jesus got this thing going. Talk to the hand. I trump you with Jesus and me. Those are the instruments that he uses to point us to Christ. Vocal cords. Accountability. People part of each other's lives. I have a name for this. I'm giving the name Naamanism. You know the story of Naaman. Naaman was the leader of the troops in Syria. And Naaman had leprosy. I was telling the kids about this. I was reading the story to Daniel on Friday. And we were laughing about this, just envisioning this dude. He's leading the troops. He had his nose hanging off, ears hanging off. He's bumming about his leprosy. Well, he's got a servant that's been captured from a raid in Israel. And this Israelite girl says, you need to go see Elisha. Elisha will heal your nasty leprosy. Now, she didn't say nasty, but Elisha will heal you. So Naaman goes to Israel. And uh, Elisha is in Samaria. And he goes to Elisha's house. Knocks on the door. And a messenger comes out. Not Elisha. A messenger comes out and says, um, Elisha said that you need to go wash in the River Jordan seven times. And Naaman's like, what? Go wash in the River Jordan? He was absolutely hacked about it. Here's, Here's the language of it. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, say, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. I thought this thing would be a lot more personal. I thought it would be kind of a production are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away, watch, in a rage. And I'm calling it Naamanism. Basically where you say, I'm not impressed with God's way about healing me. That's <laughs> just Ben. That's Bread. That's not God's message through vocal cords. I got Jesus in me going. That's just small groups. I got other stuff that's more important. I'm not impressed with God's way about healing me in the ordinary and muddy Jordan. I'd rather have something personal and special that seems to make much of me in my unique situation. I want to experience God on my terms, not God's. On my terms. That's Naamanism, Circle C. Is this any different than Israel who sought to establish their own righteousness and didn't submit to God's? Is it any different? Is it any different from moralistic, therapeutic deism? Jesus and me. After a sermon like this, I think, man, I got to walk in this. I got to, I mean, this truth is before us. I've got to walk and obey in this and I've got to shepherd God's people through this along with the other elders and I think there are occasions where I need to sit down with one of God's people or a family that's part of God's people and say, man, you can't do this. You need to engage God's message through vocal cords each week. Even if you're not here physically, you need to engage it. That's why we do it online. That's why we do it in CDs. I was talking with Brad about it earlier this week, and I was hacked about something. Brad talked me down off the ledge. He said, man, you got to be careful because it's going to sound self-serving. I'm like, I don't care about me. It's not about me. Forget me. If it's Scott or Brad or Steve it's God's message for this people. We need it to remind us that our righteousness is not our own. It's outside of us. And it's muddy like the Jordan. It's just being It's muddy like the Jordan, but it's his way. And I thought, man, when I'm trying to shoot straight lovingly with some of God's people, I'm likely going to get the response, I don't need you. I can replace you with someone else who doesn't call me out on this. And I think, Jeshurun. I think with my heart broken, people that I love and care about, Jeshurun. Upright ones. Talk to the hand. Me and Jesus got something going and we don't need you. As Israel became arrogant in their works, we can become arrogant in our Jesus and me. And we can be as indignant as the Pharisees were if we're called on this. Man, the true saint, the true saint will abide and persevere in faith. And that perseverance is applied in the things he's given us the local church and ordinary muddy Jordan. Abiding happens with real people and real preachers, with real vocal cords and real sermons and real problems and real issues and real accountability. If you tremble with me at the thought of being cut away and thrown into the fire forever, if you tremble at the thought of eternity in hell, man, my encouragement to you is abide and persevere in what he's given us. A muddy Jordan. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for this people that your grace will be like a fetter that binds our wandering hearts to thee. Lord, I see how easy it is for us to migrate to a works righteousness. I see how easy it is for us to migrate to a Jesus and me trump. I see how easy it is too to teach and not be taught. To preach and not hear the message. Lord, I pray that you will create in this people a radically obedient people who are shocked and amazed by the grace of Jesus Christ, who are shocked and amazed weekly that grace should reach so low. Lord, I know that I can come across so sarcastic and such a horse is behind. I pray that you will guard this people from my... Abrasiveness, and that this people can hear truth and swallow hard with me. And Lord, that from this moment on with Danielle, that we can claim that our works, our righteousness are absolutely bankrupt. And that we need something by faith that's absolutely outside of us. And that's the finished work of Jesus Christ. I pray that that will be our cry. I pray that that will never be assumed or understood. But it will be recapitulated, recommunicated week by week. I pray that you will guard this pulpit from ever preaching another message. I pray that you will guard these ears from ever tuning in to another message. But that our hearts will be circumcised. That we like the tax collector will cry out. Beating our chest broken, and then we will leave forgiven. Lord, I know I can't muster that, and I can't produce that for my family, and I can't produce that in this church, but I know that you can in our lives, and we beg for it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In this supper that we're about to take, I want to ask that you remember a work that's absolutely and completely outside of us. That as we take this supper together, that you will remember that Christ is our righteousness. Let's take the supper. Appreciate y'all being here this morning. I have to tell you that uh, sayings like, once saved, always saved, keep you from dealing with issues like this. Just know that that little quippy saying is not in our Bible. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that God will not lose any of his own. I believe what our Bible says. No one can be snatched from his hand. So if you're this morning kind of trying to process that, trying to figure out how does that work with this, those who are once in the vine and yet now they're not, did they lose something that they once had? Yes, they did. So how does that work with those sort of promises? That's where we're going next week. And we're going to climb all up in it. And hopefully it's going to call the people of God to persevere. White hot perseverance. To be serious about abiding in the things that he's given us to abide in. Muddy Jordan Rivers. Whenever I ask people often, or talk with people often, Scott and I did a survey of, well, it kind of ended up being a survey. We went door to door every home south of I-30. The first year that we were here and passed out a little cross-point card, and we just had tons of conversations as a result. And I cannot tell you how often I heard this. Oh, yeah, he's saved. I mean, my son or my friend, he's not in church anymore, but I know he's saved. like, really? Now, if I, I didn't, I don't know that I really processed it then, but now I'm looking back and I'm going, well, how do you know that? Were you trusting in a work? Was that work a trip down an aisle and a dip in a cool pool? Was it an emotional event? That's great, but that's not completely and absolutely outside of you. I'm not saying that wasn't something. But if you're trusting in that work, then you're trusting in the wrong thing. Faith is in hoping in something that's absolutely outside of you, and for us, that's the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's not something that we do at one point in time and then just get a check in the block and move on. It's who we become. That's what abiding is. We can never assume that. Ah, I'm sure you got that. Let's move on. There's no moving on. That's it. That's what we want to be about as a church. And I hope that uh, you want to be about as families. Y'all stand and we'll dismiss. Lord, I pray that you will find us true, that you will create us, recreate us true, that you will show us dark corners, things that we may be holding on to that aren't biblical, that aren't true. We want to be rich in knowledge of you and understanding who you are and what you've done and what Christ is and how this story works, and how we fit into it, and how we need a Savior. Lord, we pray that you will work that in us. And uh, we're thankful for the time we've had together this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks.